Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Harrison Griffiths to the show for the first time. Harrison is joining us from Britain. And uh, Harrison, since this is our first time meeting you as a Young Voices contributor, I I wonder, would you mind telling us just a bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I uh, I joined Young Voices uh, for the spring intake uh, last month. Uh, For my day job, I work as communications officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a uh, free market think tank uh, in the UK. I've uh, certainly been uh, been committed to the cause for a very long time. So this is a bit of a bit of a dream job for me. And uh, yeah, getting to to talk and write for a living about uh, some of these uh, important issues about individual liberty and freedom is a bit, bit of a dream for me at this point. Well, I recently just read an excellent article that you did for the American Spectator uh, called "The British Free Speech Slippery Slope Has Become a Cliff." And I'll admit, I, I follow the news on Twitter and I follow that's that's probably where I get most of my international news but I have seen a lot of people in the UK talk about how free speech is is really becoming kind of a tricky thing there could you set the stage for us and just kind of tell us what is the situation and, and where is is the, where does the danger begin yeah so I'm um, for everybody in the states free speech has become so much more of a live issue in the past few years particularly when it comes to university campuses and things like social media platforms and social pressure and they are important topics to deal with absolutely but I almost envy you in a way coming from over here because you are fortunate enough to have the wise protection of your founding fathers and James Madison in particular on the first amendment which stops at least the government regulating the content of your speech. We unfortunately do not have that same legal protection. We do not have that same culture of free speech in our country. And over the last few years in particular, you've begun to see on the on the basis of, uh, of hate speech laws, for example, uh, the government really cracking down uh, and, and using its full muscle and force to fine, imprison, put people on probation for literally what they say, the victimless, harmless crime of using your voice. And unfortunately, in the UK at the moment, it's becoming increasingly the case that the government has more control over your mind and your mouth than you, the individual, do. Could you give us a, an example, for instance, of what that looks like? I mean, we're, when we talk about uh, hate speech, we're not talking about you know someone just you know threatening and menacing someone with their words. But what 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 could pass muster as hate speech under some of the interpretations of these laws? I mean, there's one example, I believe, from from Liverpool, which is in the northwest of England, where a woman posted uh, the lyrics to a rap on Facebook as a tribute to her friend who I I believe had fallen ill. And the rap contained um, the the N-word. And this was taken as grounds to uh, the police to investigate her, to prosecute her. She was uh, found guilty. She was put on probation. She had to wear an ankle tag for a period of time. She was under curfew. This is the type of stuff we are dealing with in the UK. And this is why I say, you know, for all the trials and tribulations that free speech in America is going through at the moment, I really do envy the First Amendment. Yeah, you point out in your article that... uh the laws that were intended to prohibit people from harassing one another instead are being used to to stifle unpopular opinions who gets the final say as to what's an unpopular opinion or not well th- this is this is the crux of my problem the, of the problem that i tried to illustrate in the article is that essentially that the final say goes to the state. There is no safeguard on that and we know as as classical liberals and libertarians that the question far more of 
well, what ought to be done? Uh, the question that matters far more often is who decides? And in this case, you have a set of laws which are often very broadly written, uh, which could encompass a sort of whole host of types of speech uh, that are being put in place in order to ostensibly censor some of the types of language which are beyond the pale. And, and I, as a, as a classical liberal, would say that even that is an overstep, but I can understand it more. Uh, but because these laws are broad, because it's the government who has the final say, you are asking self-interested politicians to draw the line between acceptable political speech and that type of speech that's beyond the pale. I believe that line is fundamentally illusory and can change very much over time. And so what you have when you give them that power to decide is, of course, they're going to say, if I believe in the right to an abortion, as I highlight in the article, that speech opposing that right or opposing the exercise of that right is akin to violence, because we've already established on slightly more reasonable, far more reasonable grounds, really, that hate speech against somebody, say, for the colour of their skin is beyond the pale, and the government has a role in policing that. And they look, therefore, to that precedent and say, well, we believe that all people should be equal regardless of their skin colour. That is correct. They look, the, they look to the precedent that the government has been able to police speech which undermines that principle on slightly shakier ground. And so they apply that same reasoning to their chosen political topic of the day. Wow. I mean, you you mentioned in your article, and I remember seeing the video of this, of of the police um, accosting a woman who was accused of silently praying outside an abortion clinic. And they asked her, were you praying? And I think her answer was something along the lines of, well, I might have been. And that was enough to arrest her. Yeah. It's, it's, it's utterly staggering. I mean, the, the, the original grounds for arrest is that there was this buffer zone that was created by the Birmingham City Council around this abortion clinic. She had twice been in, found in breach of this and warned. Uh, but even so, the existence of the buffer zones in the first place is completely insane. Uh, and the fact that the third strike against her that led to her arrest was her stood within this buffer zone next to a, a street sign literally with her head bowed saying nothing she was silently praying it is an absolutely staggering indictment of where we've got to when it comes to free speech in the uk and 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 really uh, the the debate that has occurred on this it's not received an, an, an enormous amount of news coverage but it's cut through a bit the debate focuses around silent prayer and that i agree is a, a an important distinction to make she was literally saying nothing but nonetheless, that even that even the framing of that debate is itself an indictment of where free speech has got to in the UK. Because she should be able, we should have the same outrage if she was shouting about it. But just the fact that even people who are campaigning on her behalf, which isn't very many, are talking about the outrage of silent prayer. Yeah, we're in, we're in a bad place when it comes to free speech. We really are. It's astonishing to me, and and I say this as someone who is very grateful, as you'd mentioned, for uh, the limits on government power that we enjoy here in the States, uh, thanks to the Bill of Rights, which springs from Enlightenment thinking, which actually had its birth there in the UK, and yet yeah. uh, it seems like free speech is, is well, dissent generally. Any kind of dissent is, is under attack. Talk to me about uh, what is being done and, and what are the prospects for uh, either restoring or holding the line on free speech? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid they're pretty minuscule. Uh, what's what's uh, the, 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 the buffer zone that was created, uh, which led to the arrest of Elizabeth, uh, Isabel Vaughan Spruce in Birmingham, was uh, created by the local council. Councils have some power to do this. The government is currently 
putting through Parliament the uh, draft public order bill. And I believe Clause 9 of the public order bill uh, creates these buffer zones nationwide. So if you are lucky enough to live in an area where the council hasn't already decided to deprive you of your right to speak against abortion, uh, then uh, you're out of luck now because the government is going further and further. And there really does not seem to be a prospect of that changing. And part of that is because the only check, if such a thing even exists in the UK, on the power of our elected representatives to change the laws in these quite sinister ways uh, is what people are willing to vote on at the ballot box. And not only is voting a bad way to, for people to express their preferences, literally one chance every so often to put one tick in one box, uh, but it's also the case that the British people are unfortunately not all that friendly to the principles that underpin the right to free speech. There is a lot of panic in this country about the impact of the spoken word, and it's really sunken into our political culture that words can be violence, that words that distress uh, people uh, are, are a legitimate field which the government can use force to enter and fine and imprison people for. Wow. It, it, to me, that, that seems such a daunting prospect. Number one, anybody, and we're seeing the bar lowered, you know, anybody can find offense in almost anything. If I say, I think kittens are cute, I guarantee somebody out there is going to feel like, well, that's an attack against puppies or, or something. But to outsource to government, yeah, I'm, what's not, I'm not a fan of cats. What's I'm that? I'm not a fan of cats. So it's, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel affronted <laughs> by this. I feel distressed by this. Uh, you should be censored. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, to, to give government the final say as to what's appropriate and what isn't, um, what would it take to, to get people to think more clearly about maybe this is, is something we should be policing ourselves in terms of, you know, how we speak up and, and what we're willing to tolerate versus let's let the government to have the final say on what's right and what's wrong in terms of free speech? I think really it's a broader shift in the popular view of what government is and what it should do. The free speech issue does not exist in a vacuum. It's part of a broader trend in this country where, for various reasons, people reflexively look to the state and they look to power and they look to force to uh, create an environment in which their pre personal preferences are respected. And that is something we've got to change, whether it's about speech, whether it's about the economy, regulation, immigration, anything. There needs to be a massive sea change in the way, I, I would argue anyway, in the way that people perceive government. Okay, we're talking with Harrison Griffiths. He is a contributor to Young Voices. Harrison, fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Emily Schroen. Emily, I've got to ask for clarification. Did I get your last name correct? You did, yes. Oh, okay. Schroen. A small victory for man, a great one for mankind. I just, I, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I, I have a tendency to overthink those things. Anyway, this is our first chance to hear from you as a Young Voices contributor. Uh, before we dive into your excellent article on why South Korea should be taking notes from Ukraine, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure. So my name is Emily Schroen. Uh, I've been working in the nonprofit sphere for a while. And right now I've been working with an organization 
called Americans for Ukraine, helping support the Molinska Humanitarian Aid Center in Warsaw, Poland. I've also been working with some IDPs in Ukraine and, and elsewhere. I've, I have some former experience working out of Washington, D.C. with student programming. Yeah, okay. so that's what inspired my current work and writing is a lot of my experiences in, in Poland and elsewhere. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote for the diplomat.com about uh, about the humanitarian crisis, not only in Ukraine, but how South Korea should be be learning from what's been going on. Um, you know, it's been a year now, and you point out in your article that uh, a year ago, Poland went from having very few refugees to becoming the world's second biggest refugee host. Now, I know you've actually spent time in Poland. Tell me a little bit about what that has meant to the people in Poland. Right. It's a fascinating transition to witness, and it's actually more complicated than most people see on the surface. Because actually, Poland and Ukraine have a difficult history. There were some really tragic circumstances and during World War II that Ukrainians committed on on the Poles. So to see the Polish really open up their doors to Ukrainians, it's not only a powerful testament to the international community, but it's also a really healing experience. And I think not only South Korea, but the world has a lot to learn from that. And of course, it hasn't been perfect. There's there's some fatigue and there's strain, but still, the Polish community is standing strong and supporting its Ukrainian neighbors. Now, and just can you give us an idea when we talk about you know there's been a huge influx of refugees how many people are we talking roughly well some some numbers say that uh over 18 million people have crossed the border wow. so that's not just into that's not just into poland but you think poland has you know been the primary border crossing for a lot of those people about a little over nine million just crossed the border in into poland um and then currently we're seeing about 1.5 registered refugees in Poland, but some numbers, you know, put that much higher considering those who haven't had an opportunity to register yet. Then many others travel through Poland onto various other countries in Europe, the United States, Canada, Asia, and all over the world. Well, there's no doubt that there is a huge humanitarian crisis in Ukraine driving people across that border and to, to safer places where, where they can live their lives. Talk to me about what is happening in, uh, in North Korea that should have South Korea paying attention to, to how Poland is handling this. Of course. Yeah, North Korea has been an interest in the international community for a long time, and it's it's been flagged as a potential humanitarian disaster for many reasons. There's an oppressive regime. Uh, there's no political freedom. There's also, right now, a very striking hunger crisis. And actually, Kim Jong-un just spoke on it uh, this past week. And the fact that this is being addressed at all by the North Korean leader should have everyone's heads turning. What this essentially means is that the North Korea is facing the, the worst famine it's seen in a long time. And what that's bubbling is a, a humanitarian crisis that isn't entirely visible to the international community due to political restrictiveness and media restrictiveness. So even South Korea is has has acknowledged this presence and some, including uh, the former ambassador to Ukraine that I was fortunate to interview in that article, have said that this could be, you know, a sudden catastrophic event where they are, where South Korea is experiencing a flood of refugees similar to what Poland has seen from Ukraine. And frankly, I don't think that they're ready. Now, South Korea, what's what is their attitude toward refugees? Have, have they been accepting in the past? 
Right. Regarding North Korean refugees, it's a bit of a different situation because uh, North Koreans are considered Koreans. And so in the South Korean uh, government and constitution, they are granted citizenship almost automatically. Uh, in regard to other refugees, though, they've they've strayed behind in their acceptance. And it's it's a it's a famously homogenous country, similar to the way Poland was not too long ago. So all that being said, it's it's not impossible to change. And we've seen some strong strides in South Korea. They've been especially generous in giving to uh, South Korean nationals with uh, Ukrainian who are in Ukraine or who are connected with Ukraine. Uh, they're also an incredibly you know, gener generous country and have been very supportive of humanitarian efforts. Um, however, they still have a long way to go and they rank as some of the lowest uh, of the developed of the developed world in terms of accepting refugees. Well, and you had mentioned, you know, even though Poland and Ukraine had some bad blood, they were able to to come to a point where Poland was able to say, let's put it behind us. Let's welcome these people coming across our border. Um, is that going to be more difficult given some of the, the hostility between North and South Korea? Well, it's difficult to say, but frankly, I think if we've seen that it can happen in in Poland and Ukraine, I think it can happen in North and South Korea. And I think that we've seen some good signs. Obviously, there's cultural differences with South Korea accepting North Koreans. Uh, there's you know, some discrimination like you see in, in any of these circumstances across the world. Uh, however, if under this such a challenging circumstance up in Poland and Ukraine, I think it's very possible. And there's a lot of very kind, very dedicated and, and nonprofits that are currently working to help make this possible if needed. Wow. So just finding housing for all the people that are, that are coming over, can you just shed some light on us? How do they accommodate even temporarily? Uh, let's just take Poland and Ukraine, for instance, with, with millions of people coming across the border. What kind of things do they have to be willing to consider in order to, to accommodate those people safely? Of course. And at the beginning, especially, it was a scramble. And there are some there are some pretty large refugee centers in Poland. One that I'm fortunate to work with is the Modlinska Humanitarian Aid Center. And there's another large one just outside of Warsaw where people can go go immediately to get, you know, a bed for the night. Some of these people walk 10 days, you know, without basic resources to get across wow. the border. We've seen in, in tragic stories and, and intense, intense just grief and travel. So some of these places are, are able to help people. And then also there's a program where many Polish citizens are hosting Ukrainians in their own homes, and the government is offering some minimal support for that. And uh, also these shelters, people said so there are some people who have been there since the start of the war, and we're working on building them into, into a more transitory place where people can find opportunities and create some stability in their own lives. But yes, the population of Warsaw alone, uh, there it was about 2 million, and now it's about 3 million. The population of that city increased by you know, about a third. So it's it's challenging and it's a strain, but I personally have been impressed by the polls and their willingness to to help their their neighboring country. Now I I've not been to Korea, so I'm speaking from a position of ignorance, but I have the perception that uh, that uh, the the population density is is pretty tight in especially the the more populous cities there in in Korea. Does that pose a challenge or is it is it a, a similar comparison to what uh, the Poles were facing in welcoming refugees into their country? 
It's possible, yes. And of course, you know, dense cities face these challenges wherever you are. And if you see a sudden influx, that could certainly be a problem. Uh, however, I think that is something that Korea is going to have to think about moving forward is about large movements of people, whether or not it be North Koreans or, or other immigrants that they're perhaps interested in, in getting involved with. So yes, the short answer is yes, this could be a problem. However, I think it's a workable problem. And we've definitely seen how the Polish have done it in, in Warsaw and other densely populated cities. Well, as, as you point out in your article, you know, this is they shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel if they're just paying attention to the things that are being done correctly, say, for instance, in Poland. Um, and it'll be very interesting. You kind of put this on my radar screen now. I'll be keeping a much closer eye on what's happening between the Koreas, particularly in North Korea with that, that looming famine. Um, tell yeah. us, Emily, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your work? Right. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. I, you can also find my profile on the Young Voices page. My current article, the, the recent one, is on The Diplomat. So please look it up there and you'll see more work from me soon. OK. Again, we're visiting with with uh, Young Voices contributor Emily Schroen. Emily, thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome another new contributor to Young Voices. His name is Zach Vakurovich. And Zach, for those meeting you for the very first time, do us the honor of telling us just a little bit about who you are. What makes you tick? Yeah. yeah absolutely. So I'm a wildlife biologist, went to school at West Virginia University. Uh, I started my own company a while back called Whetstone Habitat. Uh, I do private lands consulting. It's um, working with landowners to come up, develop and implement management practices for their property that are more sustainable, better for the native wildlife and plant communities to thrive. So it's a good excuse for me to travel around the country and tell people how to manage their properties. But it's a really fun job. And uh, that's kind of what consumes all my time. I'm always doing something outdoors, whether whether hunting, fishing, consulting, hiking. It's uh that's my life. Well, I'll tell you, if your work takes you outside, especially hunting or fishing as part of it, I'd say that's a pretty good deal. Better than most. It's a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm looking at the article that you wrote for uh, realclearscience.com, and, and I'm reflecting back. I think it was about 30 years ago. I was sitting down watching Jurassic Park for the first time, and, you know, the idea of, oh, they're going to clone dinosaurs and going to bring them back and whatnot. But I have heard... What I guess is some fairly serious talk in in the last few years, as as technology has advanced, that uh, maybe we will see, you know, the bringing back of some animals that were extinct. And I think specifically the woolly mammoth is one of those things that I've heard about. Talk to me about your article about three questions scientists should ask before they said about cloning a mammoth. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea for this article kind of stemmed from a podcast interview I was I was listening to where a conservation biologists were kind of talking about the plans moving forward and where the technology is at for, for making something like this happen. It's pretty incredible how far we've come since Jurassic Park to, to now. But um, I, I, I just had this strong feeling of, of I've been fascinated with the topic of de-extinction for a long time. And I, I just kind of felt like it was being mis misrepresented in, in the mainstream media as far as what is actually occurring um, with these animals. So, for instance, the, the woolly mammoth, yes, that's that's the carrot they dangle in front of everybody. And, <laughs> and quite honestly, it's probably the most realistic, um, I would consider prehistoric beast 
um, we might be able to bring back. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the ones that stands out is it has a very close relative in the Asian elephant. Um, that could also be used as a, a as a surrogate for getting an actual mammoth from implantation to being born and hitting the ground. What I don't think was being properly represented is is kind of the next step. What what is that animal that's hitting the ground? You know, is it truly a woolly mammoth? Um, the short answer to that is no. Uh, when you're looking at what's going on is, is they're taking all this ancient DNA from, from bone samples and, and tissue samples that are thawing out in the permafrost and they're, they're getting as much of it decoded as they possibly can, but it's still just a small fraction of that mammoth's complete genome. So what they're doing is they're looking at, okay, we have this Asian elephant who's a very close relative and they're filling in all the gaps with Asian elephant DNA. So that animal that's hitting the ground, is is it a woolly mammoth or is it a genetically modified Asian elephant? You know, did they just add hair and tusks, different tusks? And is that what's occurring here? Um, it's something to, to jostle with. And, and on top of that is these these elephants in particular, they spend a long time with, with their mothers and in learning the behaviors and, and characteristics and traits that that make them an elephant. You know, that's why they're so good at survival. They, they spend an extra, I think the average um, elephant will spend anywhere from 15 to 20 years with its mother before it's independent and on its own and sexually mature. That's a lot of time to learn those behaviors and, and, and how to act and behave like, you know, it's a culture when, when you think about it. Um, and there's, there's no mammoths currently available to, to teach this new animal, whatever you want to call it, how to, you know, fit in with, with the mammoth culture, if that makes any sense. So um, it, it'll be interesting. And it's not to say you can't release something like that out there and it would inherently, you know, figure some of those, those what foods it can eat, what foods it can eat. It, it, it would figure that stuff out over time, but um, it, it's just something to consider when you're looking at these, these, these mammoth tasks, such as cloning a mammoth or bringing back other species. Look at you. Raining down reality on our, you know, our, our fantasy of, you know, hello, there's nobody and out there. That, <laughs> there's nobody out there that wants to see this happen more than me. Trust me, but I, I just think we need to be realistic as far as um what is occurring. You know, when I look at something like this and how many resources are going into cloning a mammoth, there's that that takes a, a big chunk of the pie out of some other genetic research that can be done that I think is much more applicable to what we're doing right now. What I what I really don't want to happen is seeing, let's say they do get a quote unquote mammoth to hit the ground here in the next couple of years. Now, all of a sudden, do we have an excuse to, to you know, cut corners on our on our habitat work? You know, if a species does go extinct, oh, we can just bring it back. You know, we did it with the mammoth. We, we can bring it back. And then and then what's the quality of life for these animals once once they are born? You know, like they're talking about bringing back a dodo which is all fine and dandy, but what are you going to do with this dodo? Is it just going to sit in an exhibit at the zoo? You know, it's, uh, there's, yes, in theory, it's cool, but until you have a place to put them where they can act natural and, and kind of assimilate to, to fill the niche that they vacated years ago, which that niche may or may not even be existent anymore. Other, other animals have probably filled their niche over time. So if there's a reasonable place to put these animals and it makes sense, 
Um, I'm all for it, but I just think there needs to be a little bit of foresight on the front end. Like I'm all for getting everybody hyped up and excited about it. If it's bringing in donations and, and that's great. But um, I think there's some better applications for these resources when I'm looking down the pipe. Yeah, you you talk about some of the intangibles that have to be considered along with this. And, you know, most of us are content to just skim along the surface. Oh, cool. A woolly mammoth. Wow. But it, it gets complicated quickly when you consider, you know, what it takes to sustain you know, not just an animal, but a species, you know, the, will, will it have the right plants available? Will it have uh, the right bacteria, you know, and all of that? Um, there's, there's a lot of depth mm -hmm. to the topic that I don't think most of us would consider. Yeah. Not to mention pathogens, you know, like you were talking about gut biome, gut health. There's, there's so many things that, that we need to see. And we're not going to know until we get there. <laughs> is kind of the way I look at it, but but we can prepare for some of those uh, um, hiccups that might occur. Are, are there uh, are there groups that are against this? I'm and I'm just kind of wondering a lot. I'm people for the ethical treatment of animals, for instance. I can kind of imagine them maybe having a, a little bit of a problem with something like this, or would they be supportive of, of this kind of uh, technology? So I'm not sure what like PETA or the Humane Society or some of these some of these organizations stance is in on the topic of the extinction um but just going off of people i've talked to in my day-to-day -day life you know anyone from a barista to a friend's mom to just my day-to-day -day conversations with people and it's really that morality of the whole thing you know is it ethical to be doing this i think that's a very real question you know just because humans may or may not be responsible for a species leaving the face of the earth like let's let's use a dodo as an example it's very like that is the first species where man realized we can make them go extinct um there's just are we obligated to bring that species back or is it kind of do we just learn from it and move on and better protect the species we do have left so aldo leopold uh, uh, he's kind of the father of modern wildlife conservation he, and he talks about the most important um aspect of being an intelligent tinkerer is keeping all the keeping all the cogs and wheels, keeping all the parts. So, just something to keep in mind as we're talking about these conservation issues and whether or not it's worth trying to save, you know, some endangered butterfly or some plant species. You never know when we're going to need that, and then you never know. 400 years down the line, are we going to be trying to scramble to genetically engineer a, a butterfly that went extinct under our watch? So. There's, yeah, the the you can follow these these trails and in, in, in rabbit holes and you, you can go a long ways, but um, there's there's some really cool stuff going on in science right now, especially in the world of conservation that, that I'm super excited about. Zach, we've only got about a minute left here, but I have to ask this question: um, extinction and and when animals go extinct, is it always because of humans or naturally? Are there species that basically outlive their their usefulness and go extinct? 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever lived have gone extinct. And that's looking at the entire span of the Earth's existence. You know, most species that have ever occurred on this planet have already gone extinct. Now, the rate at which extinctions are happening, that's where you can kind of get into the nuance. And yes, anthropogenic, anthropogenic causes are kind of leaning heavily. And it's looking like we are the reason for a lot of these extinctions. But animals have and will go extinct, whether or not humans are here. Okay, thank you for assuaging my guilt because I was I was really starting <laughs> to feel some guilt there. I'm excited for for what you're talking about here. I, I'm glad that there are voices of reason like your own that are saying, "Hey, let's let's move ahead, but let's do this in a smart way and ask the right questions." Uh, Zach, for people who want to follow your work or follow your writing, where can they find your work and where can they follow you on social media? 
Yeah, so Instagram's my most social platform. It's at Whetstone Habitat, W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E Habitat. Um, my website, whetstonehabitat.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook. You can look me, Zach Prokurvich. Um I, I try to post as, as soon as my articles become uh, public. I try posting them on my website. So there's pretty good aggregate there of some of my previous work. Okay, I'm definitely going to be following because I want to be on top of topics like this one. Zach, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today, and we're happy to welcome Young Voices contributor, Finesse Moreno-Rivera. Going to be talking a little bit about homeless policy in New York City. And uh, first of all, Finesse, for those who are meeting you for the first time, would you mind just uh, giving us a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me today. I am a data analyst, specifically within the criminal justice field. I've worked with many different providers, um, such as the D.C. Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Wonderful. Now, when I think about uh, the problem of homelessness and I think about New York City, my first thought is, man, that must be an overwhelming issue to have to address. Bring us up to speed, if you would, on uh, what exactly is, is New York City facing in terms of the homeless problem and what are they doing about it? What could they be doing better? Of course. Um, last year in November, Mayor Adams um, pitched a new policy, which I do believe has gone into effect, in that more homeless individuals will be hospitalized and will be um, having involuntary care provided to them if they are deemed to be having a psychiatric crisis. The issue with this is the fact that um, these individuals could be hospitalized despite the fact that they are presenting no dangers to themselves or others, and that police officers are often the ones who are making these decisions without the help of mental health professionals being on the scene. Wow. Now, I I know that there has been and I'm not saying New York City's done this, but there have been other areas, uh, other metropolitan areas that have basically taken their homeless problem and, and tried to ship it, you know, somewhere else, giving people bus tickets or whatever, trying to, to send them somewhere else, let it be somebody else's problem. Um, in terms of numbers, is, is New York City, is it one of the biggest um, centers for having to deal with homelessness or are there other areas that, that maybe even, you know, are, are struggling with it more than New York? No, make no mistake, Mayor Adams has shipped some of their homeless population to other countries. I mean, we all are aware of LA's famous Skid Row um, and their their homeless population as well. But as of right now, New York is looking at about 15,000 um, families who are homeless and about 24,000 homeless adults with 21,000 homeless children. If you think about it, unfortunately, you have to think about the children in this case if we have two parents who are homeless, who are hospitalized, what are going to happen with these children? Um, and, and as we all know that the New York foster care system is already strained as it is as well. Wow. So when you talk about the mental health side, um, tell me a little bit about the, the criminal side too. Do we sometimes blur the line between those those two parts of, of the problem? We do. We do. We, we do know that homeless individuals, they are three times more likely to have a mental health condition and eight times more likely to report a drug use. However, there are no 
really look for today to support the fact that they are more likely to be criminals than those who are sheltered. Um, and so there is nothing to say that Adam's decisions for involuntary transportation could really be um, preventative to um, not cause harm to others who are sheltered or those who are just passive buyers um, throughout the homeless population of the community. Wow. So where where does the the mayor turn for for the primary help in dealing with the problem? Is it is it something that's that's being given to the police? Is it something that's being given to mental health professionals? Is there a better uh, resource available that to the mayor is not at, you know utilizing? I believe that this is a more of a complex issue that shouldn't be one-dimensional. Mayor should be reaching out and, and working more with mental health care professionals. I think that he should be working definitely more with um, the education system. By that, I'm talking about experts that are more so in the field thinking about this in a different light. I know California are doing they're doing some, um, some great work with their homeless populations and figuring out what works best. There's a lot of data analysis out there, reports that have shown that um, you know shelter is the number one um, number one factor that is so important for those who need stability within their lives to really start out um, into being more part of society again, just having that stability. So shelter is number one. And really and truly what could be happening is taking all these empty buildings um, from the result of COVID and making them into more sustainable homes and just having that shelter for individuals within the homeless population. So really just looking at from a contract standpoint and zoning standpoint as well, he could be doing a lot more um, when you know trying to look at housing for these individuals too. Finesse, talk to me about how um, this problem can be addressed without uh, compounding the problem through through creating um, learned helplessness or, or dependence, basically on on the state to provide you know those solutions. Or are there are there ways that that immediate need for shelter can be met, but at the same time it's it's not creating a kind of a permanent shelter. You know, I think that, if anything, there definitely needs to be more resources. Unfortunately, I think that New York right now is overwhelmed, as many, many facilities are throughout the country, because we just don't have enough workers on the, at the front end, at the forefront, you know, and especially with pay. You think about caseload with these individuals going out and, you know, trying to help and provide resources. We just don't have enough people on the front line being able to help without, you know, experiencing burnout um, for themselves. So I really do think the more workers that we have out in the force out there willing to help individuals get the resources that they need to get up their feet, I think that's what we need the most. Um, is really just making sure we have a very strong workforce there and just out on the streets and helping these individuals do what they need. Talk to me a little bit about Mayor Adams. Is, is Mayor Adams' approach um, vastly different from how previous mayors have addressed this, or has this been an ongoing problem that, that other occupants of that office have, have had to deal with as well? I think that his approach is, is different. Um, I I do believe that it's perpetuating the same cycle of hospitalization, um, letting someone go once they have a quote-unquote plan and then just seeing someone back in the hospital because they don't have a sustained plan in place. You know, but 
With that being said, there's also, you know, some research out there as well that have seen individuals over longitudinal studies that have been given, you know, the resources that they need, have been given a plan, have been given permanent, you know, housing, um, and unfortunately have, you know, have left their placement. So it also comes down to responsibilities and the want from an individual who does receive resources, um, who does put that stability within their life. Um, to want to take what they're given and, and go for it. So, you know, with that being said, we can only do so much. We have to be individual where they're at, and they want to want to be able to change. Um, so, you know, we can only do what we can do. Um, but I will say with, with Mayor Adams and his approach and what he's doing right now, I think it's somewhat of just a Band-Aid. Um, and I, I also think it's more of like a cleaning up the streets type of approach too, you know, as we know, there were a lot of different um, stories that were going on, a lot of different instances, of, unfortunately, with people being attacked on the subway um, as of recent. And so I, I really do think this is, you know, just a different way of cleaning up the streets of New York for him, too. Are there any other major cities in America that likewise are having to deal with this problem that, in your mind, are doing an exemplary job that maybe uh, Mayor Adams could look to their example? Again, you know, I know that California is doing something a little bit different as of right now. We know that Skid Row is going to be Skid Row. Um, again, shelters uh, are huge things. Building, you know, these tiny homes. You see a lot of um, a lot of people who are volunteering to do that. But again, that's once again taking up um, space. There's zoning issues with that. We also see that in Washington D.C. We see a lot of those issues. We see a lot of backlogs. Um, so. You know, to, to me, I think it's going to take a little bit more, um, I hate to use my own word, well, excuse me, my own name, finessing when it comes to this, because there is not just one one simple plan. And also, you know, when you think about it, too, I, I, I get that question a lot. Okay, well, can you give me an example? Can you give me an example? And it's like, you know, not one plan, not one shoe fits all, because each city, each state is completely different, absolutely different. And so, you know, to me, it's just going to happen. It's going it's going to be a multifaceted workforce answer for Bayer Adams to have to figure that out. Because even with this plan that he put forth, I mean, there's not even enough beds to support you know this plan as it is. So I, I honestly don't know what this is you know what it's going to take for the homeless population. But there has to be something else rather than overwhelming, you know. Our, our hospitals and our resources are barely there and individuals who are burnt out and police officers who are not trained as it is. Okay, very good. I, I really appreciate you shedding light on this. Again, we're talking with Finesse Moreno-Rivera. And uh, could you please share with us, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media? So I can be followed at Finesse Marino on Twitter, and then also I can be found um, Finesse Marino Vera on LinkedIn. Very good. And Great to visit with you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. Okay, thanks, guys.